If you will, please stand with me at the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 22, verse 30, through chapter 23, verse 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that is the the tribune, the leader of of the, the Roman soldiers there in Jerusalem, commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent... The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You may be seated. In this passage, chapter 22, verse 30, is setting up what happens in verses in chapter 23, verses 1 through 11. If you'll recall from last week, the, the last time we saw this man, the commander of the Roman soldiers, the, the, the man, the tribune, he, he had just learned that Paul, who, who the Jews were calling out for his death, who, who, who he had put in chains, who he was... He wanted to find out why is it that they want him dead and, 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 and he, and he ordered his own soldiers to flog Paul to find out. And then he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen and he must not do that. And so he's in this situation in our passage where he wants to find out what is the real reason why you're so hating this man? Because I don't believe what I've heard so far. And so he brings Paul before groups of people to find out. And then we have these interactions between Paul and three different audiences. 
And, and that gives us three different answers for the real reason why it is they accuse this man. Who the tribune really looks up to at this point. Why would you accuse this man? We'll get three answers, but let me summarize them all with the point of the passage as I understand it. And that is, when liars accuse, the Lord encourages. When liars accuse, the Lord encourages. I want you to know when we come to passages like this, where we see Paul going through things that you probably can't even imagine. Maybe you don't know anyone, anyone personally who's going to the degree of suffering that the Apostle Paul is, is going through in this passage and in others. I, I'm not the kind of person who says, well, persecution doesn't exist anymore for us. I, I do understand the idea behind that, that, that we're not experiencing in our day, in this place, the kind of things that Paul was experiencing. But Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, you are going to face afflictions like us. And Peter can say to the churches in Asia, the trials that we face for the Lord and being faithful to him are varied. So that when I read this passage, I believe this kind of thing still happens. Maybe not to this degree. And that means... That there is encouragement here for all those who would be faithful to Christ. We have instruction here to all those who will represent Christ faithfully. And then they face difficulty because of it. What should we do? When even the, those who are religious, the Jews here, those who claim to be close to God, those who who want to be close to God, what do we do when they threaten those who are faithful? And I'm going to give this to you in three parts because these are the three answers to the tribune's question. Why is it that they would accuse him? The first answer comes in verses 1 through 5, and it's because of Paul's conscience. His conscience Notice how his conscience, he says, is current. This brings about the hatred and the accusations of Paul when he says this in verse 3. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. All my life, not just before men, but before God, up until this very day, my conscience is good. Everyone has a conscience. It is this mechanism inside of you where you have some sense of what is right and what is wrong. That is your conscience. It's this internal confidence of what's right and what is wrong. And you, you may have heard. Uh, the, the, the famous saying of J.C., always let your conscience be your guide. Of course, that's not Jesus Christ who said that's Jiminy Cricket. Always let your conscience 
be your guide. Always do what you believe is right. I would say there is an extent to which God would agree with that, but we have to make some qualifications. God would say, he does say, don't sin against your conscience. What he's saying is, if you do something that you think is sin, if you do something knowing you think it's wrong, even if it's not wrong, you wanted to do something wrong and therefore it is wrong. You should only do what you believe to be right. But what we have to qualify here from Jiminy Cricket is that we believe that sin has had this effect on all of us. That the sin inside of us is at work in what we think is right and wrong. So that God's word is a better guide. Than our conscience. Even the Apostle Paul who said these words, all my life I've lived before God and I have a good conscience up to this day. He says elsewhere, I am not aware of anything against myself. My conscience is clear. Every time I'm proven wrong about something, I make it right. So that there's nothing outstanding there that I haven't brought in line with what God says. He says, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Not just because I think I'm innocent. Not just because I'm doing everything I can to stay innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. There is a higher standard than every sinner. Every holy sinner's sense of what is right and wrong. And that is God himself. And so, beloved, as he speaks about his conscience being current, up to date, kept in line and clean and good. Understand this point. God's word must be what reshapes our sinful conscience. Believers have a better guide than our conscience. We have faith in God. And we are called to live, bring our life in accordance, not with what we think is right and wrong. But as God and his word reshapes what we think is right and wrong, we live by what we believe he wants us to do. And that's what Paul is saying. His conscience is good in that sense. In verses 2 and 3, we get two strikes In verses 4 and 5, we get one confession. Two strikes and one confession. The Jews are pretty chapped when Paul claims this kind of innocence. They're they're upset because he has told them that the Savior they've been waiting for is Jesus of Nazareth. And they killed Jesus of Nazareth. So they, they think he's a liar in that sense. When they hear that Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus is even going to save their own enemies, and he's leaving them in their sin. They cry out, away with this man, Paul, who preaches these things. Let's kill him. So when he stands before them and says, I'm innocent before God, the high priest orders that he be struck in the mouth. How is it that Paul can even make this claim? I've said a little bit. But but don't forget what he admitted to in chapter 22 in verses 4 and 5 when he himself said, 
Yes, I was trying to serve God, but I was doing it by persecuting the church. I was killing the people of God. I made them my enemy. And Jesus had to stop me in that work and say, you're persecuting me when you persecute the church. How is it that Paul can then stand just a few verses later and say, before God, I've always had a good conscience. Because he made his conscience current and conformed his life to God's will at every step along the way. So that when Jesus reveals himself as God and the Savior and Messiah, he then conforms himself to that. He's clean in that way. He's clean whenever they say, why would you revile God's high priest? So the high priest orders that Paul be hit in the mouth. And Paul says, don't you know the law commands you that you can't punish anyone before they're proven guilty? You're breaking the law, you whitewashed wall. He says to the high priest. He didn't know that's the high priest. So when they tell him that's the high priest, he remembers God's word and he brings his life back in line, his conscience back in line. And he says, forgive me. I didn't know he was the high priest because God is the one who says, you don't speak evil of the ruler of God's people. So he's constantly doing this. Even when he's corrected, he brings his life back into line so that his conscience is always current. That's what we should be. It's people who don't do what we think is right and wrong, but what we believe God thinks is right. And when we're shown that we're wrong, we then change. We keep our conscience current. And I want to say that in verse 3, when he called the high priest a whitewashed wall, who God was going to strike, even though Paul's not perfect when he said it, he shouldn't have been that kind of blunt and disrespectful to the leader of God's people. He's also correct, even if he's not perfect. I don't just mean that nine years later, Ananias, this high priest, was struck dead. I don't just mean that. He was correct. I also mean that what he's doing when he says, you are a whitewashed wall, is he's quoting the prophets. Ezekiel chapter 13. When God comes through Ezekiel and says to the people who are leading his people, to the false prophets in the nation of Israel, he says, you are whitewashing flimsy walls. When you tell my people that they're at peace with me, even though they're staying in their sin and not turning from their sin, you are making these flimsy walls and you're washing them with white and it makes it look like they're secure. It makes it look like a strong wall. It makes it look like they're protected and they're not going to be punished. But God's going to strike that wall down with hail and the enemy's coming in and you will be punished. Paul is saying that that's exactly what these group of Jews are doing. They have a peace, a kind of peace with God that they're offering people that's made of plaster. A peace of plaster. And I want you to know every person who's religious is looking for peace with God. There's all kinds of different ideas on how we get it. How is it that man can be right with God, can please God, and you need to know 
All the other ways, but Paul's is a piece of plaster and God's going to strike it down and then they're going to know they were wrong. And that's what Paul's saying to Ananias, the high priest and the Sanhedrin who are here. In other words, what he's saying is you're lying. Why is it that they are accusing him because they're liars? Because they have a way of make, being made right before God that doesn't include Jesus. They're liars. They're the ones who accuse me. They told their people, if we just are faithful to God's law, if we keep God's law, then God is fine with us. Thinking they actually are doing it. No one does it. It's a piece that's made of plaster. And that's what Paul says when he says, you whitewashed wall. Is it even possible? Is it even possible for people who were made to be perfect, just like God in every way, who are not perfect, who are full of sin, and therefore God in his holiness is angry and has hell and wrath for sinners, How is it if we can't keep God's law that we can have any peace? Is every religion plaster? Well, Jesus faced this same group of people. I mean, someone different than the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Son of God who had lived his life not just with a good conscience by bringing it back in line with God's word, but instead with a perfect conscience, he actually knew what was right and what was wrong, and he didn't do any wrong. And he was living his life according to the law of God. And we were told, though he had done nothing wrong, he would be killed. This group of people ordered that he be killed. Even though he's perfectly innocent. And God was doing something at the same time. He was fulfilling his law. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Can give you peace with God. Because he became a curse from God on a cross. He became sin, though he knew no sin. When God the righteous pours out his wrath on the righteous son, he can take the place of sinners and make us righteous. And this is what the Lord Jesus has done. And that is the only way you can be made right with God, is if someone perfect took your place so that you don't have to die in your sin. But beloved, if that is true of you, if you know the Lord Jesus and you are at peace with God, then live at peace with God. Keep your conscience current. Live with a good conscience. Do it before God, not before man. Others may approve of what we're doing. That's not enough for us. We want to live before God in his word. And when he brings a word that corrects us and shows us, we may have thought we were fine, but his word clearly says this. When you're made aware of that, like the Apostle Paul, keep your conscience current and bring it in line in confession of sin and repentance. This is what we do because Christ paid so great a cost for our peace. 
We're in the first part of this sentence. When liars accuse. It's liars who are accusing the faithful because of their good conscience in Christ. We haven't gotten yet to the Lord's encouragement that's happening while the liars are accusing. And we won't get there just yet. Next we have verses 6 through 10 where we see the liars accusing him again. And they're accusing him now because of his hope. Because of his hope. Look at look here in verse 6. We have a parted counsel. A divided counsel. Verses 7 through 10, there arose such a clamor. In this group of, of, of Jewish leaders, there, there, there are Pharisees and there are Sadducees. And Luke comes into the story in verse 8 and he explains why this is important. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, says there is no such thing as an angel. There is no such thing as a spirit. But the Pharisees believe in the resurrection from the dead and they believe in things like the spiritual world. And because of Paul's hope, he says. Look in verse 6. Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. This is why they accuse me. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am here on trial accused. It's because the Sadducees in that room are liars. They're the ones accusing. They don't have any concept that that there's a spiritual world out there and, and therefore when the body dies that 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 the spirit can stay alive and, and and that God can raise the dead and and that we can live forever with God they they deny all of that and they're liars and when they're upset about that in verses 7 through 9 I hope you're hearing echoes from the gospel echoes from Pontius Pilate and what he said about Jesus when Jesus was on trial they say about Paul we find nothing wrong with him We find nothing wrong with what he claimed in the last passage, that one day the Lord Jesus Christ, who these men have killed, appeared to him again because he was raised from the dead. They they, they say, so what if he says that there is someone who came to him and spoke to him? We, We have a category for that because God speaks about that in the Old Testament. It's not saying that they believe in Jesus. They're just upset at the Sadducees who don't believe that this could even be possible, that Paul would say Jesus was raised from the dead. He's given us hope in him. And so when the Pharisees come up and say this to the Sadducees, there's such there's this great clamor. And and in verse 10, the the tribune is, is worried that this parted council is about to part Paul, about to rip him to shreds. So he takes him away. Why is it? That people who are religious, people who want a way to God, but deny the way to God. Why is it that people like that, who don't agree with the gospel, threaten those who are faithful to the gospel? Beloved, we've already been told, Jesus died to give us more than a flimsy peace. That religion can give us. He died so that he can give us real peace with God. So that sinners can be forgiven and made righteous and be made one with God in fellowship. 
And here he focuses not just on the peace he died to give, but how his resurrection gives hope. And did you notice the words of verse 6? Look at the word right before the word hope. This isn't just a kind of hope that other religions might offer. This is the hope. This is the hope that God gives, the only hope that God gives. And believer, I want to encourage you today to live with the hope. This is why Paul is, is, is being accused. Because he believes my Savior is not dead. They killed him, but he's not dead. He's alive. And because I trust in him, he will bring me out of death into life. This is what Peter says. Here I'm trying to give you hope. Here I'm trying to give you what you need. Whenever you are faithful to the Lord Jesus and Others come against you. And if you are faithful to the Lord Jesus, religious people will come against you. You need the hope. This is what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he blessed? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to have new life out of our spiritual death. Where? To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, he's saying, when Jesus was raised from the dead, all those who trust in him are made alive. And they live a certain way with a hope that cannot be killed. And he explains the hope. We have an inheritance in the future that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's being kept in heaven for you. And God himself is guarding you and keeping you in the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Even though right now you're facing difficulty, you have a living hope. Beloved, your hope, you have to understand, is not about not facing trials now. It is a living hope when you're being accused. It is a living hope when the religious are coming against you. It's when you're being faithful and you're suffering because of it. That's why Peter says, when you think about your salvation, don't just think now. He goes on in 1 Peter 1 in verse 9. He says, it is when Jesus is revealed, when he comes back for us, that you will obtain the outcome of your saving faith, the salvation of your souls. He says in verse 13, prepare your minds for action. If you just coast along in your life and don't actively think about this, you won't be faithful to God and you won't have courage when you suffer. You've got to have active minds and you need to be sober about what you think you're going to get in this life if you're faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you should do then is set your hope fully, not on anything in this life, but set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you want the hope and not a hope, if you want Christian hope and not religious hope, then you need to set your hope fully on the future when Jesus comes for you. Hope is confidence that all will be made right. It's confidence that all will be made right in the face of so much wrong. That's hope. The hope. 
The hope is when our confidence is focused on God's Savior because of Jesus. He's the one who's going to make things right. Even though so much of my life is wrong, Jesus is the one who's going to do it. The hope is a confidence that is rooted in the character and the promises of God in Christ. That's why Peter says, blessed be our Father. He's so kind to us and when we face these trials. Blessed be Him who had mercy on us and raised us from the dead. It wasn't because of our works. We were sinful, but He gave us new life through Christ. Blessed be this God who is so merciful to us that he gives us an inheritance and keeps it for us. He's so generous. He'll never let anyone take it away from us. Blessed be this God who's protecting us all along the way, even though we're facing trials right now. It is the hope, a confidence that is based in Christ and what he has accomplished and secured for us. And it is a salvation. The hope is for a salvation that is better than everything a Christian experiences in this life. The best of this life is not the salvation we're waiting for. It is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time when our Savior comes back for us. Beloved, what I'm saying is all of your hope, all of Paul's hope, don't you see this? When he's facing that mob in the hands of Roman soldiers, that group of people that killed Jesus through the Romans, he's heard from the Holy Spirit. This group of people will kill you through the Romans. And he stands before them and he can preach, I have the hope and I have the resurrection from the dead and that's why they accuse me. All your hope needs to be in the resurrection. If God raised his son from the dead after men killed him, after the religious unfaithful killed him for being faithful, then if you will be faithful, he will do the same for you. Because Christ's tomb is empty. Your hope can be full. Because Christ's tomb being empty means God has accepted the deal. God has accepted what Jesus offered to him on the cross. My blood for theirs. Jesus died and God raised him from the dead saying, you were right that it's finished. Now go save them. All of your good, son, give to all who trust in you. Because his tomb is empty, our hope can be full. But if you place your hope in anything other than the resurrected Christ, you will be empty. When liars accuse, here we are again, Sadducees are liars who are accusing Paul. That's who's accusing him. The Lord encourages. The Lord Encourages, And that's what we are looking at in this final section, which is really just one verse. Why is it that he is being accused? That's what the Roman leader wants to know. Why would you accuse him, this, this faithful, godly man? And the third reason that is revealed is not revealed from the lips of Paul, but from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. It's his conscience, it's his hope, it's also his facts, his facts. Look again in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me, that's why 
you are accused because you're testifying to the facts about me. But as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify again to the same kind of people in Rome. You've got to be testifying to the facts about me and therefore you need courage. So I come and I stand by you and I speak to you. I want to think first about how he speaks to Paul and he says basically three things. When Jesus comes to Paul, he gives him a command. He gives him a commendation and he gives him a call. Do you see that in verse 11? He gives him a command right now. You need to take courage. He gives him a commendation. Your words are the facts. The facts, according to me and about me. Hear that? I just feel the need, I guess, right now, talking to us today. When we hear about facts in this world of fake news, we hear things like, you've got your facts, you've got your truth, I've got mine. Well, understand this, the Lord Jesus from heaven is saying that when Paul testifies to the facts about the Lord Jesus... When Paul is standing before the people of Israel and the people of Rome and of Asia, and he says, God has a son who took on flesh. The spirit was covered in flesh. And then God himself was crucified by wicked men. He was killed as if he was guilty. But then God vindicated the Lord Jesus. He raised him from the dead. He did for his son what you've never even considered is is possible, that the dead is raised and comes out of his tomb. And now the Lord Jesus is not walking around here no more. No, his work is done uh, according to his work on earth. So he's ascended into heaven, the Lord Jesus. And now what he's doing is he's leaving the Jews and he's going to the Gentiles to save them. And Luke says, in the first account, in the Gospel of Luke, I told you what Jesus began to do and teach, but when I say his work is done, I don't mean that he's not doing anything anymore. Paul is there testifying to the facts of what Jesus is currently doing. And beloved, when Paul and Luke tell you that when liars are accusing, The Lord comes to Paul and stands by him and strengthens him and speaks to him. Jesus himself comes and says, that's a fact. That's not Paul's facts. Those are my facts. That's reality. That's who God is. And if you're here and you want a God who forgives, you want a perfect God who doesn't let off the guilty, but a God who also sacrifices himself in order to save the guilty? You want a God that loving? Here are the facts. Such a God exists. And he sent his son to to do that very work. And everyone who puts their trust in him will not be put to shame. For the Bible, God himself tells us so. So turn from your sins and trust in Christ and he will be your God. Jesus spoke to Paul, but the thing I really want to focus on 
And, and I understand that, uh, you know, I have some, some goals sometimes about how long my sermons are, and maybe I'm getting to the, to the edge of that about now, but I, I've just been so encouraged by God's word. I needed God's word this week, and so I'm going to keep on talking. And what I want to give you is mainly this idea, not that Jesus spoke to him, but he stood by him. What I want you to see in the text is that this is a story explicitly. Luke, when he tells what happened to Paul, he's focused on the words of who stood by him. Look back in chapter 23 and verse 2. Ananias commanded the guards around Paul who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Then in verse 4, whenever Paul speaks up with the truth of God, it says, your whitewashed walls, those who stood by Paul came and accused him again. This is a story about who stands by Paul. So Luke wants us to hear that and feel that and then get to verse 11. This is a story about where and when, not just about who stands by Paul, but where Paul is and when he's there. Looking back in chapter 22, verse 30, do you see this in the text? The next day he was set before them. That's where he was on that next day. But then in chapter 23, verse 11, look down at the text. It says the following night. The next day he was set before them, but the following night the Lord stood by him. And that's not all. The book of Acts, the, the writer Luke is using these words to encourage the faithful. He keeps on focusing, not just in our passage, but in others about where the Lord Jesus is. And when he talks about what the Lord Jesus is doing right now, he's saying he's standing by his people. That's what he's doing, not only in the, in, in, in the story of how Paul was saved, He's standing by his people, you know, figuratively. He's he's supporting them whenever someone's trying to kill his people. But I mean, right before that, Acts chapter 7, listen to what it says about Stephen, whenever he's talking to these same religious enemies who will not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says these words, behold, Stephen said, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing. At the moment that he's about to be killed, He sees the Lord Jesus standing. And when he sees the Lord Jesus standing, all the enemies do the same thing to him that they're going to do to Paul. And Paul's right there. They cry out with a loud voice and then they stone him. And it says, listen to these words. They threw his garments at the feet of Paul. Paul was standing by. So, Luke is really concerned to use this phrase and we're to draw all the comfort we should draw from this, according to Luke, that when liars are accusing at that moment, the Lord is encouraging. That's why in Acts chapter 12 and Peter is being punished for his faithfulness in preaching the gospel, finds himself in prison. And then we get the words, the angel of the Lord stood by him. So we also get Two years after this, Paul testifying right before his death to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. At my first defense, no one 
came to stand by me. All deserted me. And he he names Christians who weren't there for him. May it not be charged against them. No one came. No one came. Where's James? Where's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem? Who Paul just talked to? Where's he? He's not, he's not there with Paul that morning. Don't you know Paul, what he, what he faced that morning? It was the following night that the Lord came to stand by him. But don't you know that Paul would have been discouraged? He would not be facing much courage. He'd be reflecting upon, don't you? I wonder if you know, know this experience, how the enemy, how the accuser uses moments like this in the life of the faithful. He comes alongside. And he says, you accuse the high priest. God's not happy with you. They struck you. Where's James? Where's Luke? Where's Barnabas? If you were faithful, don't you think they would be here by you? Do you have courage to keep on going? But listen to what Paul says. No one came to stand by me. They all deserted me. But the Lord Jesus stood by me and strengthened me so that I could tell everyone about him. Beloved, this is our Savior. Not just Paul's Savior. He was forsaken for you. He will never forsake you. He will be there when you need it. This is what Luke wants you to be encouraged by. If you're going to be faithful, you're going to face this kind of suffering. And there are going to be times where you feel forsaken. He had to spend the whole day in that cell by himself. He felt forsaken probably, but then Jesus comes and he says, take courage. Where you are, just understand this, can change in a night. He was before them and one night later he was by him. What I'm saying is, When you need courage, Christ will be on time. When you need confidence to keep on going, strength to do good, even though they're giving you evil. This is what happens. When you are doing good, they will repay you with evil. And it will take courage then to keep doing good. And hope in Christ will fuel that courage. I want you to be clear that Christian courage. You need to take courage. You need to know where to find it, where to get it. You need to know what it's for. It's for continuing to be faithful to Christ. They do kill Paul. It's not courage that I'm going to save you in this life. But I will deliver you from all your danger. It's for witness. That's what the courage comes for. That's what he says. Take courage because you're going to have to do it in Rome. It also, Christian courage only comes from Christ. And you won't be able to take it if he's too far from you. You have to keep yourself close to Christ because he's there to hand it out. And it's especially in his word. That's why he speaks to Paul. He stood by him and he spoke to him. And Luke gives us this to encourage us. I want you to understand. 
these kinds of truths, these kinds of what do you do when you're faithful and you suffer, they're not cheap. They don't come by cheap. No one who's a coward can tell you these things. They come through the experience of feeling forsaken by God. And then coming to realize I wasn't forsaken. Christ came to me. And Paul wants us to know it. I believe Christ will stand by us today. I believe he does. Maybe he maybe he'll do it in the same kind of way he does for Paul. For me. In the last two weeks. In these two weeks. He has given us last Sunday's passage and this Sunday's passage. Christ has come by. This is my own experience. And he has stood by me and strengthened me to keep going, to have courage when they came against me. It will mostly be in the word of God. It will be, 2 Corinthians 1, through the prayers of God's people. It will be through the encouragement of God's people. Don't you know, if you're not in a situation where you're being accused, you've got a ministry to the accused. Paul says, pray for us. Encourage us. And I want you to understand this. If you are someone who is being accused, and I mean being accused because you're serving Christ, being accused because you're because you're speaking of Christ. Being accused because you're loving uh, sinners, even if they don't like it. I, I mean, if you're if you're being accused by people who are clearly walking in unfaithfulness, even though maintaining the idea that they're being religious, if that's you, I hope that people will be praying for you. I hope. You have brothers and sisters who will come and encourage you when you're being accused. But if they won't, Jesus will. If they don't stand by you, it says that Jesus will stand by you. Go to him. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would give us courage. And we would take courage from you. There may be times, Lord, where the brothers and sisters around us can't get to us, can't get access to us when we're being accused. They, they can't get in the cell with us. It may be, Lord, that it's not that they can't get access to us. They just simply lack the compassion to do it. We take courage that you don't lack access or compassion. And we pray that the only encouragement we would give is the only get is the only encouragement that we need and that would be from you, Lord Jesus. Make us faithful to the very end. We ask this in your name. Amen.